Good morning. Ohayou gozaimasu. This morning we're going to be continuing in our verse-by-verse study through the Gospel of Luke. And so if you have your Bible with you, go ahead and open up to the Gospel of Luke chapter 7. Okay, Luke chapter 7. We've been in chapter 7 for the last few weeks, and we're actually looking, uh, hoping to wrap up our study of the chapter this morning, covering verses 36 through 50 in a message I've entitled, The Grateful Debtor, okay? Uh, the Grateful Debtor. And I know I am sure, because uh, I know for sure, for sure, this is, I wasn't so sure first service, but I know for sure this service, we have some Dave Ramsey followers here, uh, perhaps some FPU graduates, and I know you've been taught about that terrible four-letter word, that monster that has a chokehold on so many of our friends and family members, that awful, awful word, debt, you know. Uh, Dave Ramsey likes to keep it straightforward and simple when he talks about that horrible four-letter word. He says, it's dumb, okay? Debt is dumb. And uh, I would agree. (laughs) Very simple, straightforward. Uh, Many of you have been taught by Dave to do anything and everything possible to clear yourself of debt. And Dave has uh, a lot of wisdom when it comes to financial dealings, and I agree with him that financial debt is something that we should try to avoid at all costs. Proverbs 22.7 does declare how the rich rules over the poor and the borrower is servant to the lender. And so we don't want to be in bondage to debt. Okay? We don't want to be uh, servant to the lender. And, and some of you have learned early on in your life about fiscal responsibility and have been able to avoid debt. That's a great accomplishment, a lesson that most people only learn f- after feeling the pain and sting of debt on some level or another. But there is a certain spiritual truth that we all must come to terms with. We all at one time were buried in debt spiritually. Okay? We all at one time were bankrupt. Okay? We had a debt that we owed that was unsurmountable. Okay? Something we could never, ever get out from under. Something we could never pay. We were born into sin born under the weight of our sin and kept in bondage to our sin, enslaved to the world and to the flesh. We had no hope of ever escaping and getting out from underneath this weight, and we were indebted for life without any hope. There was nothing that we could do to get out from underneath this massive debt we were in. No amount of good deeds, uh, good gestures, nice things, words, nothing could lessen the grip of this debt that we were in. Our only hope was to have someone come along and pay our debt for us. And that is exactly what Jesus Christ did for us. Uh, He paid a debt that we could never pay ourselves. He willingly laid down his life as payment for the sins of the world. And all the penalty for sin was laid upon him and the wrath of God was poured out upon him. And it's only because he paid our debt that we have been given the opportunity to be set free from that spiritual debt. And today in our text, we're going to read about a certain debtor that had experienced that amazing grace of God and the forgiveness of sins that can only come through Jesus Christ. As we go through the account, we're going to note the actions, the attitude of this grateful debtor with another person, a very religious person, one who failed to see his own need for forgiveness and his own need to be set free from the debt that he was ensnared to. 
So let's go ahead. We're going to read our text this morning. We're going to see what the Lord has in store for us. I am going to ask you just to please rise to your feet in honor of God and his word. I'm going to read the entirety of our text, and then we'll pray and we'll ask God to lead and guide us through it. Okay, Luke continues his orderly account of the life of Jesus in chapter 7, verse 36, with the following. Then one of the Pharisees asked him to eat with him. And he went to the Pharisee's house and sat down to eat. And behold, a woman in the city who was a sinner, when she knew that Jesus sat at the table in the Pharisee's house, brought an alabaster flask of fragrant oil and stood at his feet behind him weeping. And she began to wash his feet with her tears and wiped them with her hair of her head. And she kissed his feet and anointed them with the fragrant oil. Now when the Pharisee who had invited him saw this, he spoke to himself saying, This man, if he were a prophet, would know who and what manner of woman this is who is touching him, for she is a sinner. And Jesus answered and said to him, Simon, I have something to say to you. So he said, Teacher, say it. There was a certain creditor who had two debtors. One owed 500 denarii and the other 50. And when they had nothing with which to repay, he freely forgave them both. Tell me, therefore, which of them will love him more? Simon answered and said, I suppose the one whom he forgave more. And he said to him, You have rightly judged. Then he turned to the woman and said to Simon, Do you see this woman? I entered your house. You gave me no water for my feet, but she has washed my feet with her tears and wiped them with the hair of her head. You gave me no kiss. But this woman has not ceased to kiss my feet since the time I came in. You did not anoint my head with oil, but this woman has anointed my feet with fragrant oil. Therefore, I say to you, her sins, which are many, are forgiven. For she loved much, but to whom little is forgiven, the same loves little. Then he said to her, your sins are forgiven. And those who sat at the table with him began to say to themselves, who is this who even forgives sins? Then he said to the woman, your faith has saved you. Go in peace. Let's pray. Father, we thank you so much for your word, and we thank you for this opportunity to hear from you. Lord, I pray that uh, as we get into your word, that your Holy Spirit would lead us and guide us into all truth. Lord, that we would know uh, what your spirit is desiring to say to us. Lord, that we would understand the, the, the context of this but Lord, that we would make application as well, that we would interpret and understand what you're wanting to say to us. And so Lord, lead us and guide us. Continue just to be with us in our time of service. May you be honored and glorified. We ask and pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. You may have a seat. Our account in verse 36 begins with a description of an invitation that Jesus received from a certain Pharisee whom we later uh, read was named Simon. Now, we aren't told specifically why Simon invited Jesus to dinner. We don't know his motive, but it would seem based upon the context of our reading of how things played out that Simon wasn't necessarily considering Jesus to be an honored guest. Perhaps he was curious about Jesus. Maybe he heard things about him and he wanted to see for himself uh, if 
you know, what he was, you know, all about. And uh, so he invited him to dinner to see that he could get a closer look at, at Jesus for himself. Perhaps he wanted to test Jesus and see what he knew and, and quiz him on certain things about the law. As a Pharisee, Simon would pride himself on knowing the law and observing the law to the very smallest of details. Perhaps he wanted to test Jesus as a traveling rabbi and see if he really knew his stuff. Perhaps Simon was a man that was envious of the applause of man and the intention of man and thought that having Jesus over to his house for a special dinner would elevate his status, especially considering the popularity of Jesus at this time was continuing to swell and grow. And it's even possible, but I will admit less likely, that Simon had a genuine spiritual interest and hunger for the things of the Lord. While we can't say with certainty what Simon's motives were, I do believe that the text supports the idea of Simon being a little skeptical of Jesus, as we'll see in our text later on. Now, of course, Jesus would know Simon's motives, whatever they may have been, but that didn't stop him from receiving the invitation from Simon and coming to his house. You know, it's interesting to me that Jesus in our portion last week, if you were with us, you'll maybe recall that he mentioned how they uh, accused him of being a glutton and one that ate and drank with tax collectors and sinners. Yet here we see him coming and entering into the house of a Pharisee. Pharisees were seen by most as, uh, you know, the religious leaders of their day. Uh, They were seen as being very zealous for the law of the Lord. Of course, we do know that most of them were very legalistic and that they often played the part of the hypocrite more Often than not, Jesus had some harsh words for the Pharisees. Nonetheless, within their communities, they were well-respected religious leaders. And, And it's just an observation I think worth noting. You see, Jesus felt comfortable sitting down and eating with tax collectors and sinners, as well as sitting down with Pharisees and the religious elite. And you would kind of think to yourself, wow, those are two very different crowds. How can one person go and and mingle and kind of fit in with this group and at the same time fit in with this other group? How is it that he could do so? And, And I think it has to do with his overall mission. Remember that the main verse of Luke's entire gospel is found in Luke chapter 19, verse 10, which states, For the Son of Man has come to seek and to save that which was lost. Jesus came to seek and save those who were lost in their sin. He came to set free those who were in bondage to sin, those who were indebted to sin. And that meant going and eating with tax collectors and sinners and even Pharisees. For all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God, according to Romans chapter 3, verse 23. All are under sin, according to Romans chapter 3, verse 9. Ecclesiastes even states, For there is not a just man on earth who does good and does not sin. Jesus was willing to go to any sinner's house that he might share his gospel message with him, that they may believe upon him and repent from their sins and receive the grace and forgiveness of God. Jesus was all about getting people saved, whether tax collector, sinner, Pharisee, or anyone else. They all needed saving, and so Jesus was open to meeting with them all. 
And so Jesus goes to Simon's house and he let, let's see what happens as Jesus arrives and gets settled in for his meal with Simon. Read with me verses 37 through 39 again. It says, And behold, a woman in the city who was a sinner, when she knew that Jesus sat at the table in the Pharisee's house, brought an alabaster flask of fragrant oil and stood at his feet behind him, weeping. And she began to wash his feet with her tears and wiped them with the hair of her head. And she kissed his feet and anointed them with the fragrant oil. Now, when the Pharisee who had invited him saw this, he spoke to himself, saying, This man... If he were a prophet, would know who and what manner of woman this is who's touching him, for she is a sinner. Stop right there. We are introduced to a woman here in our text. She goes unnamed, uh, and she was a well-known sinner from within the city. Uh, We aren't told specifically what she did, but most paint her as a woman of the streets, though we can't say that with certainty. This woman, when she heard that Jesus sat at the table of Simon the Pharisee to eat, she purposed in her heart to go to Simon's house so that she may see and hear what Jesus had to say. We can tell as well by the fact that she brought with her an alabaster flask of oil that she planned on using it to anoint Jesus uh, with it if the opportunity presented itself. Now to us, as we read this account, we may find it odd or perhaps strange, that a woman like this would simply come into the house of someone that was having guests over for a meal. Uh, if you are thinking that way, you know, can I, I kind of read it at first, it's like, oh, that's kind of weird, right? Uh, w- we don't understand the cultural significance of this event, okay? For us, it would be considered somewhat rude, if not scary, if someone just barged into your house, especially you have guests over, you're having company, and people just walk in and they just kind of sit there and start listening in on your conversation. That would be weird, right? Uh, That would freak us out, okay? But back then, whenever someone invited a traveling rabbi over for a meal, it would often be an open invitation for others to come and sit alongside the inside of the walls, there by the windows, so that they may hear what the rabbi had to say. Only those invited would actually have a seat at the table and actually partake of the meal, but it was expected that the house would be somewhat open for others to come and and hear the conversation and the teachings of the rabbi. And so this would have been somewhat of a normal thing to have someone come into your house unannounced and uninvited to observe and listen in on your dinner conversation. (laughs) Also, I do want to note something here that I think is interesting and worth noting. It's regarding the timing of this in relation to what else had just happened according to Matthew in Matthew's gospel account. For we read in Matthew's gospel that something happened in between Jesus' words about John the Baptist and Simon the Pharisee's invitation to dinner. Matthew tells us that after Jesus spoke to the people about John the Baptist, that he went on to speak about his rejection in such places as Chorazin and Bethsaida and Capernaum, Jesus pronounced woes against uh, those cities for not receiving him, even after all the many works that he had done in their midst. And then in Matthew chapter 11, we read that Jesus said the following. He says, come to me, all you who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls, for my yoke is easy and my burden 
is light. And so it's very possible that this woman heard Jesus's invitation to come to him. And that's why she has come. Maybe she identified herself as one who labored and was heavy laden and needing of rest. Maybe she was coming to Jesus to hopefully find and receive that rest that Jesus spoke of, to maybe learn from him, to yoke together with him. We aren't told how this lady knew about Jesus and what exactly it was that sparked her interest to come in the first place. But we know that she came and she came prepared to honor Jesus. She came with a very grateful heart, a heart full of love, as we'll see. Well, when the woman entered in, she made her way to the feet of Jesus. Now, you also must remember that people didn't usually sit in chairs at tables like we do when we eat our meals, okay? Don't you know, as you try to picture this, don't picture this woman trying to fit underneath the table at Jesus' feet, okay, while, you know, Simon and the others are trying to eat their meal. That would be really weird too, okay, and that is not what would happen, okay? They would actually usually eat while sitting upon the ground. Perhaps there would be a small cushion or pillow to lean up against, but the common posture at these meals was to actually sit on the ground, usually on some sort of rug or carpet with your feet back behind you while you recline resting upon usually your left elbow so sometimes they'd have a big pillow or something to, you know you let would rest upon like this reclined laying down and you would just kind of take food off of the table and dip in the bowls and, and that sort of thing and so uh, a very different way to eat than what we are used to but something that's still practiced in certain parts of the world even today it, and even here in japan right sometimes we if you eat on the tatami mats you we don't lounge, but, um, you know, it, it's more on the floor kind of a style, right? So this woman finds where Jesus is reclined at the table, makes her way directly behind him at his feet. And we're told that she's weeping, okay? And, and as she is weeping there at Jesus' feet, her tears are falling down onto the feet of Jesus, and so she stoops down and she begins to wash Jesus' feet with her tears and wiping them with the hair of her head. But that's not all. Okay? She then began to kiss the feet of Jesus and then took the alabaster flask of fragrant oil and used it to anoint the feet of Jesus. Now, the Bible speaks of a couple of different times that Jesus was anointed by a, a woman, but I don't want you to get those events mixed up with this one. Okay, this account in Luke chapter 7 is the only time that this uh, specific account is spoken of. You don't find this account in Matthew, Mark, or John's gospel account. But you do find in those gospel accounts other accounts of women anointing Jesus' feet. But the, it, they're not the same thing. Okay, John chapter 12 mentions an anointing that occurred six days prior to the Passover in Bethany by Mary, the sister of Lazarus and Martha. There she too used her hair to wipe Jesus' feet and anoint them with oil of spikenard. We also read of a possible separate event that took place at a different Simon's house. Okay, this is Simon the Pharisee, but in Matthew and Mark's uh, account, we read of Simon a leper who... Uh, hosted Jesus, and there was a woman that goes unnamed there that she also anointed Jesus, but she didn't anoint Jesus' feet. She anointed his head. And, and so these events, they're very similar, but they occurred at different times and at different places by different women. And so we want to make sure we understand that these are unique 
circumstances. But we can learn a little bit about this particular event from those other events. Because we're told in those other accounts that the oil that was used was the same kind of oil in each case. Each time it was this special perfumed oil that was used. Okay, an, expen an expensive spikenard oil in an alabaster flask. And the other accounts were actually told that this kind of oil could sell for over 300 denarii. Um, now, a denarius was equivalent to about a full day's wage for a common laborer. So considering the fact that people worked a six-day work week, something that's valued at over 300 denarii would be equivalent to about a year's worth of wages. So this was a very expensive and costly perfumed oil uh, ointment type of uh, that she's using. Many suggest that women during that day would often carry something like this around with them as dowry uh, around their necks on a chain for the day of their marriage. So this was a very special, costly type of oil. When Simon the Pharisee saw all this happen, and he spoke to himself, okay, and this wasn't something that he said out loud, but something that he was thinking to himself, and he thought, this man, if he were a prophet, would know who and what manner of woman this is, who's touching him, for she is a sinner. Simon knew who this woman was, and he knew her as a sinner. And he, being a devout Jew and a Pharisee, would have nothing to do with such a person. The Pharisees went through extreme measures to ensure they did not have any interactions or any contact whatsoever with anything or anyone that would be considered unclean. Okay, if a Pharisee was to be touched by an unclean sinner, okay, then it would make them ceremonially unclean, unable to worship at the temple. The, they would have to go through ceremonial cleansing and do all sorts of extra work in order to bring their offerings to the Lord at the temple so they would avoid sinners and anything that would make them unclean. Now, the wording here in the English is not as descriptive as it is portrayed in the original Greek. The statement of Simon the Pharisee is actually a second-class conditional sentence in the Greek. Okay, and you're like, well, what's that mean? Well, let me explain it to you, okay? This form of conditional sentence is spoken of as the contrary-to-fact condition, okay? This form of sentence shows that Simon did not believe Jesus was a prophet, okay? This is a unique Greek construction, which would be better understood in our English as if he said this, if this man were a prophet, which he is not, he would know who and what sort of person this woman is who's touching him, but he does not. So if you were to actually take the literal Greek and the way it's structured, that's kind of more the idea that is being portrayed. As I stated earlier, I believe that we see a bit of Simon's intentions and motives for inviting Jesus over here in his statement. It would seem that Simon was wanting to see if Jesus really was a prophet, if he really was who he claimed to be. And in Simon's view, he has his answer. Jesus is not a prophet. Okay? He is not who he claims to be. And therefore, Simon feels as though he has his answer about Jesus. He needs not to learn anything else from him. But let's read on in our text and see how Jesus responds to Simon's thoughts about him. Read verses 40 through 43. And Jesus answered and said to him, Simon, I have something to say to you. So he said, teacher, say it. There was a certain creditor who had two debtors. 
One owed 500 denarii and the other 50. And when they had nothing with which to repay, he freely forgave them both. Tell me, therefore, which of them will love him more? Simon answered and said, I suppose the one whom he forgave more. And he said to him, you have rightly judged. We'll pause right there. The first thing Jesus did was address Simon by telling him that he had something to say to him. Now, I want to pause here real quickly to make a point. Jesus came to Simon's house with the desire to teach him something, with the desire to speak to him. Jesus said to Simon, Simon, I have something to say to you. And and Simon responded, teacher, say it. Listen, I believe that each and every time we set aside time to meet with the Lord, that he has something he wants to say to us. Each time we meet for service on Sunday morning, each time we gather together for Wednesday night service, I believe with all of my heart that Jesus is in essence saying this same thing to us. Church family, I have something I want to say to you. And what is our response? Are we like Simon the Pharisee? Do we say, teacher, say it. Do we want to hear what Jesus has to say? Do we come with the expectation that Jesus is going to speak? And listen, okay, I'll take this even a step further. I don't believe that this is only true when we gather together for corporate worship. I believe this is true each and every time you open up God's word, okay? Each day when you open up God's word to read from it, I believe Jesus is saying, Perry, I have something I want to say to you, okay? Freddie, I have something I want to say to you. Okay, Ruth, I have something I want to say to you. Are you ready? I believe God wants to speak to us all the time. And the question is not whether or not God wants to speak to us. The question is whether or not we have a desire to listen. Do we have a desire to hear from him? Do we come to him with expectation? Do we come expecting him to speak to us? to have something to say to us. Church family, I I hope that we do. I hope we have that belief that each and every time we open up God's word, that he desires to say something to us and that we would come with an attentive ears, with expectant hearts, and with an open mind ready to receive all that he has to say to us. Back to our text. Jesus had something to tell Simon, and he does so through the use of a parable. Jesus shares a parable about two hypothetical debtors who borrowed from the same money lender. One debtor owed 500 denarii. We already mentioned that a denarius was the equivalent of about a day's wage. So 500 denarii would be equivalent to more than a year and a half worth of wages. The other debtor, okay, he owed 50 denarii, the equivalent of about two months worth of wages. Now, I think sometimes when we read these biblical currencies, we kind of don't get the grasp of of what's really being said, okay? So just to put it into perspective here, to present a current modern-day hypothetical, um, you know, according to what I found on Google, okay, I don't know how much to the accuracy this is, it's said that the average salary for military personnel, when averaging out everybody, your enlisted, your officers, your, you know, bonuses, your, you know, all the different things, okay, Uh, 
this article said that it amounts to about $62,000 a year for average, okay? So, say a military member, okay, owed 500 denarii worth of debt, that would owe basically roughly about $100,000 in debt, okay? Someone that owed 50 denarii worth of debt, okay, would owe roughly $10,000 in debt, okay? So maybe that helps us kind of put this into perspective. One owes $100,000 in debt, the other $10,000 in debt. Neither of the debtors had anything to pay their debt, and so the lender freely forgave them both. That words freely forgave, they're actually one word in the Greek. They share the same Greek root word of charis, which is translated as grace. Okay? The lender had grace upon these two debtors, and he forgave them their debts. And then Jesus asked Simon the question, which of the two would love the man more? Which man would love the lender more for the grace that was shown to them? And in verse 43, Simon responded, I, I suppose the one whom he forgave more. To which Jesus replied, you, you've rightly judged. You see, the truth of this parable is very plain to see. Jesus didn't make it hard to understand. It is very plain to see that the person who had a greater debt would be the person that should show more gratitude, more appreciation, more love for the grace that had been extended to him. I mean, put yourself in those shoes, okay? Say, you know, you've got, I, I would, I, I, I'm scared to even say this because this would be really, really bad. But say you have $100,000 in credit card debt. That would be so bad, man. Um, let's just say you had $100,000 in credit card debt. <laughs> and uh, your buddy had $10,000 in credit card debt, okay? And that credit card agency... Uh, decided just to extend some grace towards the both of you and said, you know what, don't worry about it. Your debt's forgiven. You don't need to pay us anything, okay? First of all, I just want to warn you guys, that won't happen, okay? okay? Don't try and say, hey, let's be biblical and see that that will not work, okay? That is not going to happen, okay? But think about it. Which of those two people should be more appreciative? More happy, more relieved, more grateful and loving toward that credit card agency, right? I mean, both should be happy and grateful, but you would anticipate a, a greater impact upon the one that was forgiven the greater debt. Okay? The, the one forgiven 10 times the amount of the other should be 10 times as grateful, 10 times as loving, 10 times as appreciative for the grace extended them. Well, What's the application of the parable? Jesus gets to that in verses 44 through 48. Let's read it. It says, Then he turned to the woman and said to Simon, Do you see this woman? I entered your house. You gave me no water for my feet, but she has washed my feet with her tears and wiped them with the hair of her head. You gave me no kiss, but this woman has not ceased to kiss my feet since the time I came in. You did not anoint my head with oil, but this woman has anointed my feet with fragrant oil. Therefore, I say to you, her sins, which are many, are forgiven, for she loved much. But to whom little is forgiven, the same loves little. Then he said to her, your sins are forgiven. We'll pause right there. After getting Simon to properly interpret the parable, Jesus then turned his attention to giving the application. And he turned to the woman and he said to Simon, do you see this woman? You see, that was the first problem for Simon right there. Simon didn't see the woman. 
He didn't bother to see the emotions of this woman, the brokenness of this woman, the pain of this woman, the needs of this woman, the life of this woman. All he, all she was, was a sinner. And he could care less about her and her situation, her circumstances. Simon didn't see her for what she was worth. To him, she had no value. She was nothing more than a sinner. But Jesus saw her. Jesus wanted Simon to see her, to take note of her, to take time to observe in her and her actions, because Jesus was going to use this woman to teach Simon some very important truths about gratitude and expressing our love. Jesus goes on to contrast the woman's actions with Simon's inactions. Simon gave no water for Jesus' feet, but the woman had washed Jesus' feet with her tears and wiped them with her hair. You see, during that day and age, people often walked around from place to place, and they would often wear sandals. As such, people's feet would get very dirty, okay? and they would be covered in dirt and dust as they traveled from place to place. And it was customary to have a basin of water for people to wash uh, their feet as they would come into your home. But Simon offered no such washing of Jesus' feet a very disrespectful and a culturally taboo thing not to do, okay? Simon did not give Jesus the customary kiss that was part of a typical greeting during those days, yet the woman never stopped kissing Jesus' feet. Again, in that day, and actually still even to this day, okay, it is part of the cultural norm to greet someone with a kiss on the cheek. If you go to the Middle East today, you will see these types of greetings amongst friends and guests. It's a very normal thing. Simon did not extend that to Jesus. Simon did not anoint Jesus' head with oil, but the woman anointed Jesus' feet not just with oil, but with a costly, fragrant oil. Now, this wasn't actually something that you would do just for everyone, but it was something you would do for a special honored guest. You would anoint their head with oil. Psalm 23 speaks of this particular uh, practice when mentioning God's favor as the shepherd of his people. David says, you prepare a table before me in the presence of my enemies. You anoint my head with oil. Okay, we know by his inactions that Simon did not perceive Jesus as an honored guest. And so it's no wonder why he didn't anoint Jesus's head with oil. He didn't think Jesus was anything special or worthy of uh, anointing uh, of the head with oil. Jesus then gets to the conclusion of the matter. The woman's sins, which are many, are forgiven, for she loved much, but to whom little is forgiven, the same loves little. This woman's sins were not forgiven because she loved. Okay? She loved because her sins were forgiven. Okay? I need you guys to understand the difference here. Okay? This is not saying that she was forgiven because she, she loved. We're not forgiven our sins because we love. Okay? That's not what the scriptures teach us. This woman's sins were forgiven because she, excuse me, this woman's sins were not forgiven because she loved. She loved because her sins were forgiven. Jesus affirmed to the woman that her sins were forgiven. And if you peek down into verse 50, we see and we note that it was her faith that saved her. Okay? This woman acted in faith and demonstrated her gratitude and love for Jesus in a number of ways. And I want to take just a few minutes here to highlight this woman's actions and explain how they demonstrate her love for the Lord. First of all, number one, 
okay? She came to Jesus. When she heard that Jesus was going to be at Simon's house, she showed her love by wanting to go and meet with him there. She came with a desire to meet with Jesus, to enter into his presence. This wasn't just some happenstance meeting. No, she purposed in her heart to come and to meet with the Lord. Her love for the Lord is seen in her desire to meet with him, to be in his presence. You know, the psalmist writes this in Psalm 84, verse 10, For a day in your courts is better than a thousand elsewhere. I would rather be a doorkeeper in the house of my God than dwell in the tents of wickedness. Listen, do we think that way? Hey, do we think that one day with the Lord would be better than a thousand days anywhere else? Hey, is that our heart? Would we rather spend one day with God than a thousand days you know, think of your happy place, wherever that is, you know, some tropical beach, I don't know, some cabin up in the mountains. Would you rather have one day with the Lord or a thousand of those days? May our love for the Lord be seen in our desire to simply be with Him and to meet with Him, to enter into His presence. Second, we see her love and her brokenness. She came to the Lord broken, weeping. The word weeping used in verse 38 is a strong verb. It means to wail or lament. It implies not only the shedding of tears, but also every external expression of grief. This woman was broken. She was undone. She knew and understood her sinfulness. She knew that she could do nothing about it. She knew that she needed Jesus to do something for her, and she came broken before him. Again, the psalmist declares the sacrifices of God are a broken spirit and a broken and a contrite heart. These, O oh God, you will not despise. Let me ask you this question in, in all sincerity. I want you to think about this. When was the last time you came before the Lord simply broken in love and just in adoration of the Lord? Just broken. You know, we gather in this place to meet with the Lord, to, to worship the Lord, but I fear that more often than not, when we come to church to worship the Lord, to demonstrate our love to Him, that we come trying to mask all the brokenness. We try to come and make it seem like we have it all together. We don't allow ourselves to be broken out of fear of what others may say or what others may think about us. Listen, of all places, church family, this ought to be a place where you can allow your cracks and your wrinkles to show. Okay? We all know we're not perfect. Okay? We're all messed up. Okay? Why try to hide it? Allow yourself to be broken before the Lord. Come and just express your love to Him with a broken and a contrite heart for these God tells us He will not despise if we would just come broken before him. Third, we see her love demonstrated in her continual devotion. Jesus said of this woman that she did not cease to kiss his feet since the time he had entered into that place. This woman's love was displayed through her constant, continual signs of affection. It wasn't that she kissed his feet once and then was done. 
but she kept on kissing his feet continually over and over again. She wasn't satisfied with just a passing interaction with the Lord. Her kissing of his feet demonstrates a a level of intimacy and a devotion to the Lord. She wasn't coming to meet with the Lord so that she can just do her due diligence and then move on. Her meeting with the Lord wasn't just some check in the box for her. It wasn't just a, a time, you know, to say, oh, you know, kind of went there, went to church, did there, did that, you know, met with the Lord, kissed his feet, I'm out of here, time to go. It was a time to demonstrate her love for him in whatever way she could. And I think we need to check our own hearts here as well. You know, when we meet with the Lord, is it an act of love? Is it a sign of our devotion and affection for the Lord, or is it simply a check in the box? May that not be our heart. May our heart be for the Lord. Our love for Him, may it be demonstrated in a continual devotion, a continual desire to be with Him, to love Him, to grow in our intimacy with Him. Fourth, we see that her love was costly. It was displayed in her sacrifice. When she came and anointed Jesus' feet with that costly, fragrant oil, it was a demonstration of her love and the value she placed on her love for the Lord. Her love for the Lord was far more valuable than the value of that costly oil she poured out on the feet of Jesus. I'm reminded of the account in 1 Chronicles chapter 21 when David came into the threshing floor of Ornon, the Jebusite. You guys may be familiar with that portion of Scripture. David had counted the people and the Lord was displeased with David and the Lord had sent a plague in the land. The prophet Gad came to David and told him that he must erect an altar on the threshing floor of Ornon, the Jebusite. And so David went to Ornon's threshing floor and Ornon came out to meet David and and bowed before him with his face to the ground. I mean, this is the king uh, of Israel, right? David and himself coming over to your house. David then asked to purchase the threshing floor so that he could erect an altar to the Lord and withdraw the plague from the people. Now, 1 Chronicles 21, verse 23, we hear Ornon's reply. He says, take it yourself and let my Lord the king do what is good in his eyes. Look, I also give you the oxen for burnt offerings, the threshing implements for wood, and the wheat for the grain offering. I give it all. Ornan's response to David was, hey, you can have it all for free. I'll give you the land. I'll provide the meat for the sacrifice, the wood for the altar, even some grain for a grain offering, all of it for free. It's yours. Take it. And one might think they were getting a pretty good deal here. But not David. David responded to Ornan, No, but I will surely buy it for the full price, for I will not take what is yours for the Lord, nor offer burnt offerings with that which costs me nothing. David was not willing to offer to the Lord something that cost him nothing. And David demonstrated his love and devotion to the Lord by making sure that his sacrifice was something that had value to it. And the same is seen in this woman. She demonstrated her love by giving of something of great value in sacrifice to the Lord. Our love for God, it should be demonstrated in our sacrifices to Him. Fifth and finally, we see that her love was a demonstration of her gratitude for her sins that were forgiven. Jesus said that she loved much because she had been forgiven much. And really, that is what separated Simon from this woman. Simon did not see his need for forgiveness He did not see his need to have his debt paid. He felt like his ledger was clear. He was good. 
He didn't know any debt. He failed to realize the magnitude of his own sin. The woman knew. She understood the magnitude of her own sin. She knew that she was in desperate need for forgiveness, for Jesus to do something for her because she was hopeless on her own. And listen, it is those that understand the depravity of their own state and the incredible debt that was paid for them upon the cross of Calvary that will inevitably demonstrate their love for God and gratitude. Simon was not only blind to this woman and her brokenness before God, but he was blind to his own need for the same kind of heart. And as such, he did not love the Lord. Brothers and sisters, I I need you all to understand the magnitude of the debt that you have been forgiven. Jesus Christ took upon himself the penalty of every single one of your sins. He took the full wrath of God upon himself. He paid the way for you to be forgiven a debt that you could never have escaped. He paid the price in full for you and for me. We were lost, hopeless. We were destined to spend eternity in hell, separated from God and His love. But God demonstrated His love toward us and that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. And as we respond to that demonstration of God's love and we receive by grace, through faith, the forgiveness of our debt, our natural response, our expected response is that we would love God just as He loved us. You know, 1 John chapter 4 speaks about that. It says that we love because God first loved us. Let's finish up our text by reading verse 49 and 50. It says, And those who sat at the table with him began to say to themselves, Who is this who even forgives sins? Then he said to the woman, Your faith has saved you. Go in peace. The people sitting at the table with Jesus, presumably Simon and the rest of his invited guests, probably other Pharisees, other religious leaders, began to say to themselves, who is this who even forgives sins? You see, the Pharisees knew the law. They knew that God alone could forgive sins. For Jesus to say, your sins are forgiven, was a very huge statement. And the Pharisees wondered why this man Jesus would say such a thing. And they missed out on the most obvious of answers. Jesus could say this because he was God in the flesh. Truly only God has the ability to forgive us of our sins. For our sins are first and foremost against God. It was David who said, against you, you only have I sinned and done this evil in your sight. And the only way to have your sins forgiven and have peace with God, as this woman did as she was instructed, go in peace. The only way for us to have our sins forgiven, to have peace with God, is to come to Jesus, to receive the gift of His grace, the forgiveness of sins that comes through faith in His life, death, and resurrection. The scriptures state this, that if we confess with our mouth the Lord Jesus and believe in our heart that God has raised Him from the dead, we will be saved. For with the heart one believes unto righteousness, and with the mouth confession is made unto salvation. If you're here this morning, and you have yet to respond to the free gift of salvation that God offers to you, I would implore you not to delay. To make today the day of salvation for you. 
I would exhort you to put your faith in the completed work of Jesus Christ. He paid the penalty for you. You do not need to be in debt any longer. You do not need to be in bondage to sin any longer. The price has been paid for you, but you must acknowledge your need for forgiveness first. You must acknowledge your sin first. Listen, you can't be like Simon and think that you're good enough on your own. Simon failed to recognize that he was a sinner. He could look at that woman and say, that woman is a sinner. But he could not look at himself and identify himself as a sinner. And because of that, he did not have his sins forgiven. We must recognize first and foremost that we are sinners and that we are in need of God's grace, that we are in need of forgiveness. You need to realize your need and receive by faith the gracious gift of salvation provided through Jesus Christ. Now, for those of you who have already accepted God's gracious provision for your sins, I would just encourage you, implore you if I could, to follow in the example of this woman who demonstrated her love for the Lord out of an extreme gratitude for all that he had done for her. May our love of the Lord be evident Okay, may it be seen, may it be demonstrated in our lives each and every day. May it be as visible as this woman's display, her demonstration of her love for the Lord. Amen? Amen. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word. And we thank you for this example of this unnamed woman, this woman who was a sinner just like each and every one of us, Lord, and she knew it. She knew her need to have her sins forgiven. She knew that she was uh, indebted and never able to come out on her own from out, out from underneath that debt. And so, Lord, uh, we thank you for the debt that you paid in her life. But, Lord, we also realize the debt that you've paid in our own lives as you went to the cross of Calvary for us as well. And, Lord, I pray that we would understand the magnitude of the price you paid for us. And Lord, that we would demonstrate our understanding of that magnitude and our love for you. You know, Lord, you said that it, people will know that we are your disciples. They'll know that we love you, that we follow after you based upon our love, based upon our love for you and our love for others. And so, Lord, may your love flow through us. May it be evident in each and every day of our lives. Lord, I pray that if there is any here that have yet to receive the gracious gift of salvation that you offer, Lord, I pray that today they would yield themselves to you, that they would admit, that they would confess their sins. Lord, that they would believe in their heart that you rose from the dead, that you rose victoriously, defeating sin and death. Lord, and that you offer to us freely your righteous standing. Lord, How amazing that is, Lord. How we thank you. And we just are in awe of you. What a tremendous gift you've given to us. Lord, may we demonstrate our gratitude in our lives each and every day. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.